Okay, my voice isn't fully back, but it's been too long since I've recorded, so I'm just going to give this a shot and edit out any coughs and stuff, so I apologize for the tone of my voice. I'm going to do the best I can, but you've waited long enough for an episode, so let's get to it. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 195, Red Sea Rising. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thank you very much to Justin, Gary, and Anita for signing up already. Last time, we ended with the saga of Judith and Baldwin, which took us a bit out of our timeline, but I'm glad we did it because I really love that story. However, let's get back to our not-so-tropical island. It's December, nearly Christmas in fact, and King Athelbald is dead. Queen Judith has sold her properties and is headed back to Francia, and according to King Athelwolf's will, the Kingdom of Wessex was due to go to Athelred, a boy who was probably only around 13 or 14 years old. Now on the one hand, it's nice to have a clear line of succession. And the fact that Athelbald didn't have any kids with Judith saves us from the possibility of an infant making a play for the throne. But on the other hand, with Judith's exit, Frankish interests in the English kingdoms have substantially waned, and the communication between the kingdoms is breaking down. Furthermore, the heir apparent was Athelred, an untested fourth-born son who was still a young teenager and very likely never intended to sit on the throne, and who was likely thoroughly unprepared for the task. Now, we don't know how King Athelbald died, and quite a few scholars have pointed out that he may have died from natural causes due to his age and the fact that his cause of death wasn't stated. As you know, I'm not a historian, but based upon what the historians tell us about Athelbald's death, I suspect that, unless they're explicitly talking about diseases that can strike people in the prime of their lives, the notion of death by natural causes is based upon outmoded beliefs and assumptions about this period of history. The thing is that a lot of times, natural causes is code for old age. And a lot of times, that explanation comes to us from historians who wrote in earlier generations, or people who rely heavily upon those same historians. The truth of the matter is that even in the formal study of history, old ideas die hard. So let me walk you through why, despite what some historians have argued, I don't think that Athelbald died of old age, or diseases that were associated with old age. First... Athelbald wasn't all that old. He was probably only in his mid-twenties when he died. And usually people, even earlier historians, tend to underestimate lifespans during this period because they get confused by the term life expectancy. If I say the average life expectancy for many regions of Europe during this era was around 40 years old, that doesn't mean that people don't live to their 60s. And an assumption like that would fail to take into account early mortality when looking at average life expectancies. What the term life expectancy really means is that based upon deaths at all stages of life, the average is 40. If you remember back to that one statistics course you took, 
you'll recall that the average, or what statisticians call the mean, is only one part of the story. Another part that you need to know is what's called the skew, which refers to where the majority of activity, in this case the majority of deaths, is actually occurring. If a distribution of deaths is skewed to the left, it will take the mean to the left with it. In the case of the Anglo-Saxons, and many populations during this period, the distribution is massively skewed to the right, what's called a positive skew. This is telling us that a tremendous amount of the Anglo-Saxon population died very young, and this drags the average age of death down with it. That's just what happens when you take simple averages. But the more complex truth is that if you were an Anglo-Saxon in the 800s and you managed to reach the age of 20, your chances of living to 60 were actually pretty good. And those odds would get even better if you're wealthy, because you'd have a pretty good diet, would be unlikely to suffer from malnutrition or famine, and generally aren't going to be exposed to many of the non-military hazards that the lower classes would deal with, like getting kicked in the head by your horse as you try and tie him to your plow. People still misinterpret the meaning of life expectancy today, and those misinterpretations happened a lot more frequently a couple generations back. So that's why I'm not buying the he was in his mid to late 20s and therefore pretty close to the end of his life theory for natural causes. The other reason why I don't buy the assumption of natural causes is that these records were political in nature. We're currently up to our necks in Scandinavians. In fact, on this same year, 860, we're told about how there came, quote, a large naval force up into the country and stormed Winchester. But Alderman Osric, with the command of Hampshire, and Alderman Ethelwolf, with the command of Berkshire, fought against the enemy and put them to flight, made themselves masters of the field of battle, end quote. So what we're hearing about is Winchester, the West Saxon seat of power, getting attacked by Vikings. These were not peaceful days. And at the same time as these increasing raids, we have the House of Wessex dropping like flies. And yet mysteriously, none of them seem to be dying due to any sort of conflict. They just die in their 20s, as if that's completely normal. And then the rest of our sources tend to speak about the House of Wessex like they were a special race of humans who were specially designed to fight the Vikings. That's more than a little hint that we're not getting the full story from these guys. But regardless of how it came about, King Athelbald was dead. And given how quickly the nobles moved into action, I wonder if they had a sense that it was coming. Because the nobles of the south don't appear to have missed a beat. King Athelbald's brother, King Athelbert of Kent, quickly swept in and held a council with Athelred, Alfred, and, quote, all the councillors of the West Saxons, end quote. The subject, of course, was who would rule over the West Saxons. While the will of King Athelwolf was clear and the kingdom was due to go to Athelred, and then after his death to Alfred, the council decided to give the crown to King Athelbert of Kent the one son of Athelwolf who wasn't included on that line of succession. He was explicitly left out of the will, and we assume that the reason he was left out wasn't because King Athelwolf didn't love his son, but rather it was because he was already made the king of Kent. And apparently Athelwolf didn't want to have Wessex and Kent work under the same kings. I don't know why. Anyway, 
So, given that this is Anglo-Saxon Britain, you might assume that since Athelbert has now just seized the throne of Wessex, that there is some sort of coup going on. And I wouldn't blame you if you did. This does seem a little suspect, given the speed of King Athelbert's initiative and how it was all playing out. However, the recollections of Alfred make it pretty clear that this was something that all the counselors, as well as Alfred and Athelred, agreed upon. So rather than being a seizure of the throne, this looks like it was more of a negotiated settlement for the good of the kingdom. And frankly, it really was the best option for the kingdom. Unlike Athelred, Athelbert was 26 years old, and he was an experienced king. Furthermore, by granting him rule over Wessex, the kingdoms of Kent and Wessex would be united into a much larger political and military bloc that Dumville called Greater Wessex, which combined the territories and, more importantly, the militaries of Kent, Surrey, Sussex, Essex, and Wessex under a single banner. So, if you were a West Saxon noble, the choice was clear. Athelbert was your best bet. But what if you're Athelred or Alfred? They're being asked to willingly give up their inheritance and hand it over to their brother that they likely hadn't seen for quite some time. So why would they do that? Well, they might have been motivated by the same strategic reasons as the other nobles. But they also had a few other aspects that would have been specific to them. Most importantly was the fact that King Athelbert swore in front of all the witnesses that, upon his death, he would restore the kingdom to his two younger brothers, quote, in the state in which it was when we entrusted it to him, end quote, and that he would give them the lands that he also acquired. Scholars, and it appears the brothers, have interpreted this to mean that Wessex, as well as King Athelbert's Kentish bookland, were now united as a single inheritance that would be passed down by fraternal descent. Consequently, Athelred and Alfred were essentially being asked to make a bet on whether their older brother was good for his word. If he wasn't, they might lose everything, but... If he held up his end of the bargain, they could end up with an inheritance that would be substantially larger than what they were originally promised. Given how quickly the sons of Athelwolf were dying, and the fact that Athelbert, like Athelbald, was childless, they might have felt like it was a good gamble to make. Especially since, judging from everything we see in the record, King Athelbert of Kent appears to have been a really good guy. And his brothers might have known that. Sometimes, people are just good people, and you can tell. So, the brothers and counselors came to terms, and agreed that King Athelbert of Kent should become King Athelbert of Wessex, and he was crowned soon thereafter at Kingston-upon-Thames in Surrey. And the chronicle adds that he kept Wessex, quote, in good order and great tranquility, end quote. We'll see about that tranquility, just because you're a good king doesn't mean that suddenly Vikinger bands are going to settle down. But he does appear to have been a good king. Now, looking at the charters we have on record, he seems to have immediately set to work building up support for his rule by granting lands, which is to be expected. But interestingly, the grants appear to be in exchange for loyalty not just to himself, but also to his brothers. He also appears to have been working to bring his late brother Athelbald's supporters back within the fold. 
And once again, he wasn't trying to bring these supporters just to his side, but also to his younger brothers. For example, we see King Athelbert making grants to the warrior Bishop of Sherborne to honor his recently deceased brother. And presumably, this would also earn the bishop's support for the House of Wessex. After being on the throne for barely more than a year, so sometime in 862, he appears to have started to involve Athelred in the rule of his kingdom. So much like King Athelwulf had involved Alfred in court and had him witnessing charters, suddenly we have Athelred becoming more active in courtly duties. These were all promising signs that King Athelbert was indeed good for his word, and that he was prepping his young brothers for rule. It also seems that Alfred's education, which wasn't that great under his father's tutelage, and it fell off a cliff under Athelbald's watch, well, it looks like it was being reinstituted, because Alfred was 11 when King Athelbert took the throne, and within a year, Alfred was able to read. Now, this was woefully behind where he should have been, but the fact that he began to read so quickly after his brother took the throne suggests to me that some semblance of noble living was returning to Alfred's life now that Athelbert was in charge. Things were going pretty well for the boys now that Athelbert was in charge, frankly, and I wonder if he was a beloved king. And maybe that's why we don't hear all that much about him from Alfred, since the party line from Asser and others was that the kingdom was destined to be Alfred's, and everyone else was just window dressing and placeholders. But he really does seem like he was a great guy, and a good king. Frankly, things were looking better for the South in general. King Athelbert brought forth changes in Southern politics that were nothing short of revolutionary. Under King Athelbert's rule, the strict political division between Kent and Wessex was being broken down for the first time, and it happened remarkably quickly. Soon after his ascension to the throne, he summoned all the bishops and eldermen from both realms. And the idea of this was clear. He wasn't just the ruler of two kingdoms. He was the ruler of one massive kingdom. In the words of the Chronicle, Athelbert was the ruler of Alam Thamriche, the whole kingdom. After this crucial rearrangement, thanes from the two territories started mingling more freely and would appear on charters and other documents for both kingdoms. So he was breaking from Athelwulf's decision to divide the kingdoms. Kent and Wessex were no longer having truly distinct and separate lines of succession and nobility. Under King Athelbert, they were unifying into a larger kingdom. For the first time, we're seeing the political creation of a true greater Wessex that would stretch from the Cornish Peninsula all the way to the outer tip of Kent. Now, while he would continue to sign his documents as Athelbert, King of the West Saxons and also the Kentishman, that says more about diplomatic language than it does the state of politics in the South. Politically, things were changing and he was setting things in motion that would later allow members of the House of Wessex to claim that they were kings of the Saxons, and later, kings of the English. Now, like with many political figures from this era who aren't named Alfred, Athelbert doesn't get very good press. In fact, he doesn't get any press. But he took the advances made by Egbert and Athelwulf, and he ran with them. King Athelbert of Wessex, it seems, was a very good king. But you know who doesn't have very good kings? Northumbria. Yeah, they're back in the story. 
Now, when we were last talking about them, King Athelred II, son of Ainred, was murdered. And it's okay if your memory of this whole event is a bit murky and you're mixing up your Athelreds. Northumbria has been killing off their kings as fast as they can, and there really wasn't much about this murder that stuck out other than the fact that the whole thing was a bit confusing. If you would like a refresher, though, you can listen to episode 184. But the point is that we had a king who was murdered, and after that murder, Osbert took the throne. And we don't know who he was, how he connected to the nobility of Northumbria, nor do we know how he took the throne itself. We don't know if he was involved in a coup. We don't know if he was a scion being restored to power. We know pretty much nothing of this event or these years. This is how bad it is. We don't even know if Osbert was related to King Athelred II and just next in line. For all we know, King Athelred II might have just gotten into a drunken brawl that ended badly. We know precisely none of the things, other than one fact, which is that King Osbert was now ruling in Northumbria. And then 862 rolls around, and we're given a new fact to add to our Northumbrian drama. We're told that some guy named Alla has appeared in Northumbria. Maybe. Frankly, the dating might be off for this part of the chronicle. And the other sources, namely the sagas, are famously unreliable. But sometime around 862-ish, Alla appears. And predictably, we don't know who Alla's family was or anything about his early life. But what we're told is that he overthrew King Osbert of Northumbria and he seized the kingdom for himself. Later chroniclers would describe him as a tyrant and elaborate on his rules, stating specific lands that he seized for himself. However, given that those records were recorded 300 years later, and we don't know where that information came from, it's really difficult to place our trust in them. So for our purposes, what I think we can reliably believe is that a civil war was raging in Northumbria, and King Alla of Northumbria had managed to take the upper hand. But judging from the record, it seems that King Osbert of Northumbria wasn't ready to give up, and he was waging an insurgency against this usurper. And this chaos, as well as the decades of chaos that preceded it, was wrecking havoc on the Northumbrian economy, and their coins were getting ridiculously debased as a result. In fact, at around this time, and certainly within the next three years, their coins were pretty much just pure copper. The Northumbrian economy had collapsed, and not due to Vikings or invasion, but due to internal strife. And I'm telling you this because I want you to hold this image in your head of what's going on in the North, because it'll become very important later on. Northumbria was racked with internal chaos. Their economy was in tatters, and it was pretty much a failed state. So keep that in mind. But before we get to the consequences of that, we need to go back down south. Way south. It's 863, and Alfred is about 13 years old. And as a result, he's undoubtedly going through those halcyon years that we all remember with nostalgia and fondness. Puberty. Yeah, we're going to talk about this. So, while Northumbria was raging, Alfred's hormones were equally raging. But, having been literate for about a year, we're told that he'd been spending quite a lot of time reading psalms and recording prayers into his notebook. 
You'd grown into a very pious adolescent boy. But things were changing for him. Hair was growing in places, spots were forming in other places, and he was having thoughts. Lots of thoughts. As a former 13-year-old boy myself, I can tell you there were a lot of thoughts during this period. And Asser tells us that Alfred had a real problem with this. Specifically, he was afraid that, given his desires, he wouldn't be able to obey God's commandments. Now, being the kind of guy I am, I can't help but wonder which commandment he was worried about breaking. There are only ten. And the only commandment that had to do directly with sex was the prohibition against adultery. But Alfred wasn't married. Maybe he was worried about coveting or bearing false witness that he totally made out with that one girl that he knew he didn't. I don't know. Frankly, I think he was assuming that the commandments had a lot more to do with sex than they actually do. Or maybe he was just concerned with one of the prohibitions that exist outside of the Ten Commandments. There are plenty of those, after all. But whatever the case, 13-year-old Alfred was getting freaked out. So we're told that he prayed to God and asked that he would give him an illness that would temper these urges. And, in a classic lesson of be careful what you wish for, God gave him a wicked set of bleeding hemorrhoids. Amusingly, they're referred to in the record as figs, because that's the name the Romans used for them, since the Romans thought they looked like burst figs, which is gross all on its own. But hey, mission accomplished, right? It's hard to think about forbidden sexy thoughts when you're constantly worried that you might be bleeding into your pants. Unfortunately, his affliction was painful enough that it also interfered with his princely duties, such as riding, hunting, and training for war. So increasingly, Alfred began to turn his attention to books and other pursuits that involved sitting or lying down. Now, he couldn't have known it because no one did at the time, but it's thought that Alfred was showing the first signs of a chronic illness that would plague him for the rest of his life. Crohn's disease. And this illness would go on to define large parts of Alfred's life. But, while young Alfred was gingerly walking the courtyard, while Athelred was learning the intricacies of rule at his brother's side, while King Athelbert was uniting the south, and while Northumbria was tearing itself apart, far away, men were constructing ships, sharpening axes, and making battle plans. The era of the Viking raids was coming to an end, but the era of the great heathen army was just beginning. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Just find us at British Podcast, and you can find all kinds of other communities on our website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.